relaxing. Titus chapter 1, and we'll pick it up with where we left off. If you are here last week, we did an introduction, first four verses of Titus, and uh, we'll be picking up with verse 5. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand. We'll be reading verses 5 through 9. Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city, as I commanded you. Notice Paul doesn't say, I gave you an opinion or requested, as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, um, her bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good and sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. Let's pray. Father, we just bow before you in the middle of the week here. We're so thankful for your grace. Uh, Lord, when we think about the brevity of life, it's only by your grace that we've made it to this Wednesday. Lord, we know it could have been us walking out of a convenience store. could have been us, uh, Lord, that uh, has any number of things that happen. We, we see so many stories in the news, and it's always somebody else. It's always another country. It's always another place. But, Lord, it could be us. And, Lord, we want to be ready. We want to be ready to minister, but also ready if you should ever call our number and our name. So we just thank you for grace. We thank you for salvation. We thank you that this world is not our home. We thank you that we're passing through. And Lord, as we are passing through, we pray that we would grow while we do it. Lord, that we are being while we're becoming what you have called us to be. Lord, we pray that even tonight we grow a little bit. Even if we couldn't see it in the natural realm, in the spiritual realm, we grew a little bit. And a little bit more like you and a little more love towards you and towards one another. We pray that you give us wisdom, understanding of your word. Uh, Lord, help me in conveying it. And may uh, it all be led by, anointed by, and blessed by your spirit. We pray you just remove every distraction, anything that would keep us from hearing from you. And we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The body of Christ is a living organism. You guys agree with that? A living organism. It's alive by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here in us individually, but also here in us collectively. Just like an individual, a single person has been born by the Spirit of God, the church, the church at large, not just Calvary Chapel, but our Baptist brothers and sisters, our you know, Methodist brothers and sisters, our other non-denominations, all the church here, India, Africa, South America, all the church has been born of the Spirit. So the Spirit has given birth to the larger church, not just the individual bodies within the church. Now Jesus, we know it says he, he breathed on the church. He breathed on the church. And when he breathed on the church, he said, receive my Spirit, but then he had the Spirit fall upon the church. So we just understand how important the Spirit is to the church being living, Right? Without the Bible says, without well, the Spirit, things are dead. The church has some names that we're familiar with. 
I mean, you can say church, but you have other names. Bride of Christ. Family of God, right? Both of those are synonyms for the church. And they speak to what? They speak to love. They speak to relationship that is intended for the church. Because if you think of those names, bride and family, those names apply to the church. You can tell that God is saying, I want love and relationships to be active within the church. We're also called to be what? Sons and daughters of God, right? Not robots of God, right? Not employees of God, sons and daughters of God. The children of God, another term. These are all terms you've read. You've just kind of looked at because the Bible used similar phrases, so you get a composite view of things. Reminding us, these names, sons and daughters of God, children of God, reminding us that there is to be life. There's to be fellowship. There's to be relationship that we experience within the church. Now, Paul, in his opening greeting, and you get to go back and read verses 1 through 4, and I don't have time right now, but Paul, in his opening greeting, we looked at last Wednesday, remember he called Titus a true son in the faith. That was part of the first four verses. A true son in the faith, not a true brick in the building. He says a true son in the faith. Though doctrinally, that, that term, a brick in the building, though doctrinally, that is an appropriate analogy. And in fact, it's used in the New Testament, not the word brick, but similar. Uh, as we're called to be believers, the Bible says we're being built into a house as living stones, right? Most bricks aren't alive, right? Most stones aren't alive. God can give life. But in 1 Peter 2.5, that, that passage goes like this. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we see the picture of a house made of stones. We can all you know, picture like you know, houses in northern Ireland or Scotland. They put all the stones together, and you build a house with stones. If you go to Israel with us, you're going to see that they built buildings with massive stones. Some of them are you know, as long as from this wood to the end of the wood paneling there, and you know, they're just thousands of pounds. But the picture of a house made with stones is placed right alongside. If you heard in the verse, it says a spiritual house, living stones, built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. So we have stones and priesthood side by side in the same verse. Priesthood is people. Stones are not people. You have a picture of a house that's made of stones right alongside living bodies. A priesthood is living people. And God has called his church to be a living church, a living body. But he's also designed a very specific structure to ensure the body's growth, to ensure its stability, to ensure its health. And Paul in Ephesians 2 gives probably the best illustration of where the spirit and life, uh, the, the life of the spirit intersects with structure and stability. Turn with me to Ephesians 2 for just a second. Ephesians chapter 2. As you can see, if you're taking notes tonight, 
Our time, the word's called strength in his structure. His structure. We don't want to redesign what God's already designed. Amen? We've got a lot of people redesigning marriage. It's a really bad idea. Right? You no more want to redesign the church than you want to redesign marriage. You no more want to redesign the church than you want to redesign parent-child relationships. Anything that God has designed, you want to say, if that's the way he designed it, let's not change it. Right? If God told Noah, this is the design of the ark, no other design would have worked. You guys agree with that? If Noah said, you know what? I'm not going to use pitch. I think something else is going to be a better fit here. Right? So again, we, when we look at the scriptures, we all want, just want to say, Lord, is this how you laid it out? We want to pay attention to that. We want to understand it. Ephesians chapter 2. Starting with verse 19, middle of verse 19, I'll just pick it up with um, where it picks up, uh, if you have a new King James, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now again, Paul is going to combine here a lot of this terminology with both living, living bodies and structure. Some of you that are structure fanatics, if you're so structured, you're kind of carefree, lifey people can really get you know, around you, though, hey, hey, too much structure, right? God is a healthy blend of structure and life, vitality. Okay, picking back up. Fellow citizens with the uh, saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles, prophets, and Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. There is no building without Jesus. There's no church without Jesus. But the apostles and prophets play a key role. They're part of the foundation, he says. And whom the whole building, again, we're seeing this structure of a building being fitted together, grows into a holy temple. Now he actually transitions from just a building to a temple. The temple of the Lord, in whom you're being built together for a dwelling place of God. Here it is, in the Spirit, because the Spirit gives life. God doesn't build a church. He doesn't build a temple. He doesn't build a family. It's not to be spirit Filled, and you and I are spirit-filled individually as well. You can turn back to Titus. But even in eternity, even if you look to eternity where we will spend all of our you know, millions and trillions of years in the future with the Lord, even in eternity, the picture of structure built on redeemed lives because God takes the rubble of our unsaved selves and turns us into redeemed living stones, right? Takes out a heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh. But again, he's going to build eternity on Jesus, but also he's going to fit us into it as living pieces of the eternal kingdom to come. How do we know? Well, we get a picture of one of these things. Uh, the picture of structure built with redeemed lives is visible in Revelation 21, verse 4. And now, listen to this description of the New Jerusalem. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. All right, we understand that's very structural, right? 12 foundations. Nice even number. And on them, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The apostles are living men. The Lamb is Jesus himself. And so the names of the apostles are on the 12 foundations. We see the structure, but we also see the importance of God putting living souls into the structure. So we see and understand that God himself designed the church 
to be living, to be filled with the Spirit, and for the lives of believers to knit us all together, no matter what our background is. Matter of fact, the more diverse the background, the better. The more diverse, the better. God loves to take a bunch of disparate parts and make it into a functioning building. Isn't it great that God can take all the scraps, which is what we are, the Bible says, even our righteousness is filthy right. He can take all the scraps and make it into a building that rivals, I mean, in the spiritual realm, anything you've ever seen architecturally. He's designed the church to be living, filled with the Spirit, and for the lives of believers to be knitted together, which he's been doing and is doing. But also, while we remain in this fallen world, and again, there's a lot of things that are happening now that won't happen in heaven because sin won't be an issue there. But while we're in a fallen world, he's designed the structure of the church to function according to his building codes that will ensure the building remains standing. I get another illustration of this relationship. Why? Jesus said in heaven, we will not be married anymore. We'll neither be married nor given in marriage. That is an institution for this place and this time because of the fact that God has plans and purposes on the earth that, that are not the exact same in heaven, but the relationships are important and obviously will be knitted together in a whole new way in heaven. But he has a structure and design for marriage that's important now, but there'll be something greater in the future. Well, he has a, a structure within the church now that won't be the exact same look and feel when we get to eternity. But as it is now... He says, you've got to follow these building codes. If the church is going to be built, it has to be built according to these standards. It's, uh, it's kind of like this Holy Spirit. I don't know if this is a poor analogy or not, but go with me on it. Uh, it's like the Holy Spirit is in a building, the electricity and the running water, right? That makes the house livable. Whereas the foundation and the materials and the construction, that makes it stable. Make sense? Like you say, oh, we have the most beautiful home. Can we come over? No, we don't have electricity and water. But in the daytime, you'll love it, right? <laughs> but if it's after a certain time of day and you have to use the bathroom or something, you're probably not going to want to come over. No, the we can't cook. We, can't, we don't have running water. We don't have electricity. But the house is gorgeous. And we paid a great price for it because it was so pretty. No, we don't want a beautiful house that doesn't have running water, electric, at least not in this life, not in our day and age. 200 years ago, that was not a big deal. We have the outhouse, we have candles, we're good. You know, but uh, today, uh, we don't think that way, right? Uh, the house has become alive with uh, running water and electricity. Um, you know, when our power went out uh, with tornadoes, my, my daughters thought they'd gone into the dark ages. It was only like eight hours, but uh, they thought that, that we had traveled like 300 years back in time, it was great. Me and my wife were just laughing. <laughs> and that's, uh, but, but that's what Paul is emphasizing to Titus. The Spirit of God, like electricity and running water, is only going to operate if things are built to code. You can't just use anything to have water flow in the house. Try and, we're going to run the water through paper mache. No. Has to ha everything has to be done according to God's design. In Psalm 127, one, you know the passage. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain to build it. 
Now, it's possible to build a church without God. And, it, and the church in Sardis, I, I reference it every now and then. Jesus said, Sardis, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead as doornail. And Sardis had, a, Sardis had it going on. Sardis had it all. Sardis had the laser light shows. Sardis had the most amazing speakers. Sardis had better technology. Sardis had everything. People were, were joining up to the Sardis church right and left, and Jesus said, not impressed, dead as can be. He said, you know, it's just there's no electricity running, not of the spirit, but, but you, you, know, you, can, you can do a lot of things that look living, but Jesus, from the spiritual realm, he decides what's alive and what's not. So you can build a house without the Lord, and you can impress the world, but you still won't fool God. It has to be built according to his plan. We can choose to build and organize a church in a wide variety of ways. There's a lot of ways you, we could, you know, if you have any kind of intellect and you've, you've got leadership skills, there's a lot of ways to organize and put a church together. But if we're surrendered and obedient to Christ, we'll only build it according to his specifications, and we'll then trust God for the results. We're not trying to, we're not trying to, try to make results. We'll trust God for the results. Now, as I outlined in the opening of the study, Titus is one of three epistles. Uh, this was last week I referenced this. Titus is one of three epistles, and all three are written by Paul, uh, that are referenced as the pastoral epistles. Uh, in some respects, and the Lord put me to do Titus on my heart, I don't always like talking about, you know, I, I get to talk about pastor stuff in this, and me being a pastor is sometimes like parents trying to explain to kids how awesome parents are. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, this is why you need parents. You know, the kids are like t checking out, right? Uh, uh, so I don't really always enjoy it. But I hope that the Lord, again, takes us all through this together, and, and we understand that, again, this is God's structure. And if we follow it, God will bless it. Now, certainly all the New Testament, even though these are the pastoral epistles, Titus, 1st and 2nd Timothy, uh, the rest of the New Testament, and for that matter, all the books in the Bible, have truths and doctrine that pastors should understand or are called to understand and should be able to teach and learn from. And you as men and women that are called in the priesthood of God, you, you can learn from all the rest too. But these are specifically given to church structure. These epistles were specific instructions for the organization of church leadership, the qualifications of church leadership, again, 1st uh, and 2nd Timothy included in that, and also the pitfalls, the hindrances of not following said instructions, right? If you have any, if you ever done a job where you have someone who's really attention to details, they say, well, did you follow the instructions? Right? Well, then you can expect this or that to happen. These letters or epistles, they don't cover every single detail. Matter of fact, you might say, uh, you, if you study the Bible a while, you, you come into contact with sometimes things that you can't find in the Bible. Not the exact situation, but situations that mirror it, you can find, that are parallels. But you won't find every single scenario or every single detail that a church may have to encounter but we have clear structural and role-based outlines for within the church. And when we take it with the rest of the New Testament, again, the way that we interpret Scripture is with the, other, with the rest of Scripture, uh, with all the other writings in the New Testament, and for that matter, the Old Testament as well, 
and the writings and teachings of Jesus, or, or the writings of uh, the other writers and the teachings of Jesus, then we have this composite view of a healthy, of an effective, of a structurally sound, sound church that can be a light in a dark world. Don't we want to be that? A light in a dark world. Now, we, we need the Lord's help, but if we're going to have his help, we have to follow it with his instructions. Now, we know we have a God of order. Would you agree with that? That we have a God of order. The cycle of the sun. Pretty orderly, isn't it? So much so we can calculate clocks and electric to the cycle of the sun, the, the cycle of the moon, the rotation of the earth, the days of the week, months of the year. Uh, look at some of the other things in the Bible. The structure of the temple. Was it precise? The ark. Was it precise? Of course it was. The temple had the outer court, had the inner court, had the holy of holies. You have the precise commandments. Precise. You could not deviate from the commandments on sacrifices, on purity, on washings and purifications, on the priesthood. It would, you know, thank the Lord for the age of grace. The priesthood was kind of the Old Testament pastors, if you will, and then the New Testament pastors. I don't have to know all those washing routines. Any old shower will work, right? But they had to have, I mean, the structure was very, very detailed. Thankfully, we're under grace, and we don't have all those things. But we do see that God is very orderly, whether it's in the scientific realm, whether it's in linguistics, whether it's in uh, agriculture, you name it, God is a God of order. And as God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he has established an order for the church to function and to fulfill the great commission of Christ to make disciples. Because the reason why God's putting the church together, when Jesus left and said, I'm going to send you the helper, it was that the church would now, as we talked about on Sunday on being and becoming, go from being disciples to disciple makers. And as disciple makers, God says, I'm going to use you to go into the four corners of the earth and plant my church, of which the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he sends the apostles, and we'll get into that, where their role is in all of this. Um, the first thing I want to look at, and then we'll look at uh, the next section next. We're going to look at this same passage for two straight weeks. And the first one, <clears throat> I want to look at the office of elders. And next, uh, I'm sorry, the order of elders. Ne next week we'll look at the office. So tonight the order of elders, and the next week is the office of elders. And again, we're getting this directly as Paul received it from the Holy Spirit, and to understand what does this mean for us in the body of Christ. He says in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete. <laughs> Paul didn't say, hey, by the way, you had no idea I was leaving. You know, uh, I just jumped on a ship. Where's Paul? You know, <laughs> I left. You know, he, they had a conversation. I want you to stay here in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now we'll look more in verse 6 through 9 in the office, but, but this order that Paul is talking about, understand that this order that Paul speaks of is an extension of what Jesus had already done, think about it, in the establishment of the apostles. Jesus handpicked the 12, didn't he? And Paul referenced the 
foundation of the apostles and prophets is in Ephesians chapter 2, which we just read. Jesus, as Paul said, is the cornerstone. There's nothing without the cornerstone. But then he says the prophets and the apostles were then built on the immovable truth and Jesus' triumph over sin and death. That's what we, we have. Our foundation is a victorious foundation. It's a solid foundation. Jesus said you can build on him, the rock, or you can build on sand. You have two choices. So the church is built on the rock of Christ. And the apostles and prophets, what, did that, what does it mean when he says the apostles and prophets? Well, it includes the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament. If you've read the Bible, you've seen the word prophet many times. It's not just in the Old Testament. It's also used in the New Testament. The church in Antioch said there were prophets there. We know John the Baptist was a prophet. Right? John the Baptist, was a prophet. his father, Zechariah, was both a priest and a prophet. Because John was from the tribe of Levi. Um, but you have the apostles and the prophets, and we understand who was the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Moses, they were all prophets. But the apostles, well, those were the ones that Jesus handpicked that he personally trained, the 12, the 12 foundations that we read, uh, that I read in Revelation. Those 12 were handpicked by Jesus to be kind of the other piece of the puzzle with the prophets. So what are, we know that they were men, but what they represent is the word and the doctrine that came through these men and through the ministries of these men. Does that make sense? When you hear apostles and prophets as the foundation, Jesus isn't saying that those men in and of themselves were the foundation. Those men, equipped by the Holy Spirit, were given what? The prophets spoke things like Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 was given by the Holy Spirit through a man, Isaiah, but Isaiah didn't write it, and in the sense that he didn't come up with it, right? So what came through the prophets was the word of God, and what came through the apostles, Paul, and others and other men that would write. So if Luke writes in the New Testament, although he was an apostle, he's writing from a prophet ministry to write out Scripture. Does that make sense? God gives the word to the prophets, but he also gave them to the apostles. So the, the word and the doctrine, as well as the ministries. Now, as I mentioned, Jesus appointed 12 minus 1, Judas the false prophet, right? Minus 1, Paul replaces. Jesus on the road to Damascus says, Paul... You're my number 12. Judas is out. You're in. And then he gave... Now, by the way, you say, well, why would Jesus do that? We don't have time to get into all that, but Jesus was... It was prophesied that he would be betrayed by one of his own. Judas would fulfill the prophecy. Um, we'll get to one other reason why I think that you have something like a Judas, even chosen by Jesus, because that can sometimes... Like, why would you... you know, I don't understand. Wouldn't he know? Well, yes, he would. <coughs> But he gave each of these men the commission to do what? The commission to preach the gospel. And then he sent them the Holy Spirit for the power, Acts 1.8, that you'll be my witnesses. He sent the Holy Spirit to be the power of the preaching. So Jesus, again, before we look at why Paul is saying, why am I saying all this? For Paul to say Titus set in order, Paul is getting this order construct from Jesus. Because Jesus has already set the foundation, which Paul wrote in Ephesians 2. Jesus has set the foundation, and he's the cornerstone, then the prophets, then the apostles. And now Paul's saying, what's next? Well, what's next is the church order. So Jesus set the leadership in place before pouring out the Holy Spirit. 
And then there's the foundational work of the apostles and prophets, which continues. The foundational work of the prophets and the apostles continues till when? Till all the New Testament scripture is finished and written. So if someone comes along today, or in the 1800s, and say, we wrote another book of the Bible. No. We reject that, right? Someone comes out today and says, I've written the book that comes after Revelation. Revelation said, do not add even a word, lest the plagues of this book be added unto you. So the apostles and the prophets, they were the foundation. Once the, all the New Testament scripture is written and it was agreed upon by the apostles that this is what the Lord has given, that was the end of scripture, at least God giving it. And so what happens with the establishment of now pastors and elders, which, by the way, those terms are interchangeable. I don't have time to go into that. Why tonight, Next week, we'll look at the Greek terminology for pastors, elders, shepherds, bishops, why they're interchangeable terms and yet slightly different. Does that make sense? They're interchangeable terms, but yet slightly different. With the establishment of pastors and elders, now there's no new prophecy and no new doctrine. Does that make sense? You will never hear me saying, I've got a new doctrine not found in Scripture. If it's not found in Scripture, it's not a new doctrine. It would be a false doctrine. It's probably, it's probably been peddled before by somebody. There's no new doctrine and no new prophecy other than the Scriptures. Now, we can understand things that we didn't understand before. That's a different thing. That's revelation. But the Scriptures have been given. So what, ha what is Paul uh, and the other apostles, what are they instructing pastors and elders to be and to do? Well, there's no new prophecy or doctrine for these men. They are charged, Titus, Timothy, any other pastor, any other elder, they are charged with the communication of the prophecies and doctrines that are in the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. That's what they're told to give out. Anything that was given by the apostles and prophets. Let me be clear. Um, when it comes to the establishment of churches, and Paul's saying here, for this reason I left you to set in order the things. Paul's saying, I want you to appoint elders. I want you to make sure that we get elders established in every one of these cities. Um, it's clear that churches have been birthed without pastors or elders. Lot, lots of times. Hundreds, thousands of times in the last 2,000 years, churches have been birthed where no pastor or elder was present at the birth of the church. Paul planted some, but then he wasn't there, and they, they were kind of, and then God would raise up pastors and elders within them. This could happen anywhere. You, you could have a, this has happened in places where there was no gospel, where in Muslim countries where uh, God has come to people in dreams. They get saved, and there's no pastor, no elder, and all of a sudden a house church births. And then God sends a pastor elder from somewhere else. So it, understand that uh, churches are birthed without them in place. Paul himself, again, is saying here, Crete seems to fit that description because Paul's saying there's a bunch of churches with no pastors and elders. We need to fix that is what he's saying, right? But it's not the will of God or the Lord's will that a planted fellowship should stay that way 
and definitely without pastors and elders. Paul's making it a high priority that that is addressed, right? He's saying this, I'm leaving you there, but the number one thing I want you to focus on is get the pastor, get the elders in place. Any more than, um, any more than a parent would be okay with, hey, our baby, not walking as a toddler, still not walking at pre-K, still not walking in the fourth grade, just crawling around the house. Isn't this great? Right? No parent would say, we're just really comfortable with it. That's just the way they are. You know, uh, they're 18. They still won't walk. They crawl everywhere. You know, uh, no, you would say something's not right here. So Paul is saying that uh, elders and pastors have to be given a high priority that this is in place. He's telling Titus this is important. Now, the role of pastors and elders is to serve within the living, go back to the church as a living organism. It's to serve within the living temple. The church is a living temple. It's to serve in the living temple, the body of Christ, just as the priesthood was supposed to serve in the literal, physical temple, right? We now serve in a uh, living body. They served in a structural temple there in Jerusalem. Now, we'll look much more at the roles and qualifications next week. But it was under the leadership and the authority of the apostles via direction of the Holy Spirit that the role of pastors was established. Uh, the first pastors and elders were chosen, and then the continuation from the original ones chosen has been now going for 2,000 years. Well, you say, well, that's of course. I mean, if there's pastors then, if pastors now, there's... But there's really not any gap. There's never been a time since the G time Jesus left that God hasn't been using some men of God to give birth to other men of God. Man, you look at like some of these guys like Spurs and Dion Moody, you look at their off, spiritual offspring, it's amazing. It's like a family tree of a who's who of people used by the Lord. But it was under the leadership of the apostles um, that, that, again, the pastoral role began to be uh, trained and, and, and understood. In other words, uh, any pastor or elder today is a spiritual descendant of pastors and elders that have gone before us all spiritual descendants. You and I are here today because our parents had parents, and their parents had parents, and their parents had parents, and their parents had parents, and on back we go, right? We're all here because there was a continuation biologically, and there's a continue, there's same continuation happened spiritually. Um, the government did not create you. God did it through people. People didn't really create you. Your mom and dad, yes, they played a role, but they did not create you. God used people to create you. And organizations don't create pastors. God calls them through people. Does that make sense? Because, again, it's, understand, the living body, this is, not, uh, this is not a just static, sterile organization. It is a living, breathing body. An organization doesn't create these positions. God calls them. Uh, Paul t makes that perfectly clear. He says, you were called as apostles. You were called as pastors, elders. Uh, God calls them. And how does God call? Well, we see how it happens. Titus is a pastor. Paul is training Titus. And Titus is told to a point he calls men through other godly men. He calls pastors through these other pastors. Uh, we see a foreshadow of this in the priesthood itself. 
you know if you say the Bible, you were not allowed to be a priest unless you were born a Levite. You couldn't say, I'm born in the tribe of Benjamin, but I've decided I've made myself a Levite. Didn't work that way. Try getting past the priesthood with that, right? I've decided I, I know I'm from the tribe of Dan, but I'm just going to make myself a Levite anyway, right? Had to be of the lineage of Aaron. Now, that being the case, um, we see that the priesthood, the priest would train the younger priest, and then they would come in to eventually, they would serve in other capacities. But the priesthood was a biological, you had to be born in the, the tribe of Levite, and then they would train within uh, the priesthood. We see other foreshadows of this, for example, um, as far as the ministry being called by men through men, Moses handed the baton. Obviously, the Lord's directing Moses. Moses would say, you know what, look around. Hey, Joshua, how, how about you take this? No. Who directed Moses to give the baton to Joshua? God did. Elijah leaves. He leaves the mantle. Who does he leave the mantle for? Elisha, right? It wasn't, uh, it wasn't that uh, uh, Elijah said, all right, I've got a bunch of dice here, right? Who's it going to be? Oh, the Lord made it really clear. Notice here, Paul says that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Paul does not say, hey, Titus, you know what you need to do? You need to hire a search committee. Doesn't tell him that, does he? Titus, you need to get, I mean, a really good search committee, one that really knows what they're looking for. Guy better have charisma. Don't put someone in Crete who doesn't really have a great personality. He doesn't even mention that kind of stuff, does he? He's looking at spiritual qualifications. We're going to get, again, more into that next week. But he doesn't tell him, hey, hire a search committee. He doesn't tell Titus, you know what you should do? Take a vote from all the Christians in Crete. Take a vote. Let them decide, who do you want? He doesn't tell him that. No, in the plan and economy of God, godly men are to beget godly men. Godly men are to beget godly men. It's always been, the, it's always been God's plan. If, if you dispute that, you need to study Genesis to Revelation. You will not find any other way. That is God's plan. Paul was to see a calling in men like Titus. Paul was to be able to have enough spiritual maturity to see God has a calling on Titus. And Timothy, and of course Paul did, and then encouraged them to go forward and to grow and to serve the body of Christ. Paul was to see that, and he, then he was to pour into that. And then Titus and Timothy, we see they're, they're instructed to do the exact same things. They're now called to go and pour into these other. Titus not only is called to do a, a few cities, but all over the, the, the island of Titus, I mean, Crete, the island of Crete, is 160 miles long. So we're not talking about a small area here. He has a pretty big job to do. Now, this doesn't mean that within a plurality of elders, it's not valued to have input and collaboration from other godly men. We see things in the Bible, the Sanhedrin, for example, right? The priesthood itself, um, you know, there would have been collaboration within, within the priesthood. I mean, uh, I, for myself, when I was first approached in the late 90s, we were living in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time. When I was first approached, I was minding my own business, trying to be the best believer I possibly could be. And I had a group of men at the church there, and it happened to be the pastor and the elders came to me as a group and said, we see a calling on your life. 
I was not saying, hey, here's my resume. Uh, I think I'd be really good at this. Actually, when they told me, I was like, please go find somebody else to tell this to. Um, uh, but they came to me. I, you know, that is, that's the way it was. You know, Titus and Timothy, they weren't like, you know, running some kind of campaign. Paul saw the calling on their life. Remember, Jesus came directly to Paul, right? Paul was actually going to kill Christians. We talked about this. In Acts 13, though, again, this plurality of elders still is, still is valuable and it still is important. Um, in Acts 13, there's a group of pastors and elders there that when they fasted and prayed together as a group, the Lord showed the ministry path of Paul and Barnabas. So it wasn't like some one-man band just saying, hey, I'm going to, you do this, you go here. And Paul's not doing that here. And, he, and Titus, uh, I'm sure there's more background here than just what was, you know, it's very likely that Titus probably did sit down with other godly men and say, hey, tell me about this church. And, and it's not like he just said, hey, I, I, think, I think I see something in you. There has to be, there's more to it. But again, you understand um, that God will use a group of men to come together, but the calling has to be observable. Other people should be able to notice that. Now, as a point of emphasis, all pastors are elders, but not all elders are pastors. Does that make sense? All pastors are elders, but not all elders are pastors. Even though I said the terms interchangeable, and they are, we'll address that more in the office next week. In this sense, in the sense of level of responsibility, perhaps a singular calling, or in a sense of full-time service, Dr. Russ is a medical doctor. His full-time calling is not elder ministry. But that doesn't mean he's not qualified to be an elder. Now, other elders are full-time assistant pastors, for example. So again, all pastors are elders, but not all elders are pastors. Um, when we look at the office of elders next week, uh, all elders must be able to teach. All elders, elders have to be able to teach. Uh, they have to be men of prayer. They have to be able to disciple. And not all elders, uh, though, will be 100% dedicated to ministry. Uh, and not all of them will have the same shepherding role, although they should have shepherding characteristics. But as we see with Paul, because again, I, Titus has likely chose some elders that remained guys that worked in fishing businesses or guys that you know, had other jobs, and yet they were elders. But some of those elders would become full-time, living off the gospel Preaching, teaching, all, all of their life was now ministry like, like Paul's was, like Peter's was. Uh, again, they, well, Paul actually still did some tent making, but that was for a separate reason. But uh, again, understanding that um, as they're selected, uh, there's going to be some that will have some other aspects of their life that's not ministry related. But God assembles these men to have this shepherding role. And as we see with Paul and then Titus, he places among leaders, leaders of leaders. And that's where you have the term pastor, which, which it's interchangeable, but yet there's a distinction. You can have leaders among leaders. Uh, even in the entire priesthood, there was still a high priest, right? 
and the high priest was not the exact same, even though all high priests were priests, not all priests were high priests. So you kind of have the same distinction there. So God assembles a group of men, which we'd call a plurality, uh, but just like the military, there still will be a chain of command. Even a, in a room of generals, there will be somebody where the buck stops with somebody. And it's the way it is in uh, the church. And, and, and it has to be in your family, too. There has to be some place where there's a final decision. Husbands and wives are not, they're not neither as superior, but there is a difference in roles. And there has to be, because God says this is the way order and structure will work. Now, Paul is adamant here. He says, you know, that uh, these things must be done. Paul is adamant that the health and structure of the church, whether it be Crete or anywhere else, must have elders. Again, you could start a church without them, but Paul said it can't go on forever without them. There has to be a maturing. There has to be this addition. Spiritually speaking, elders are kind of like the load-bearing walls in a building. The load-bearing walls within the church framework. They're essential and elemental to church structure. When the Lord called me to be the pastor of this church in 2007, so I mean, I had guys anoint me in uh, Charlotte or lay hands uh, early on, and then I was ordained, I think, 2005, and then and I, when I became the pastor of this church in 2007, I didn't have a group of elders. The day I took it, the day I said, what have I gotten myself into, I did not have a group of elders. I didn't have an assistant pastor in place. Not even one deacon to turn to and say, none of that was, none of that was there in, in structure at the day I took it, but uh, through prayer, the Lord made it abundantly clear for me to ask Pastor Randy to serve with me as both an elder and a pastor. And he had been in that role before, so it wasn't like he, he had already been called to it, but the day I took it, uh, he was not in that role. And he had served faithfully in that role, and so I asked him, I said, Lord, made it crystal clear, you're the guy, will you please say yes? And he did. <laughs> I didn't beg that much, but any, you know, he was, no, the Lord had prepared him, he had, he had been faithful in that role before, and I asked him, and so um, I knew from the scriptures, I knew from the scriptures, what Paul wrote to Titus from other passages, I knew from the scriptures, not from some best-selling pastor's manual. Not that they're wrong. There's some good ones out there. Don't get me wrong. I read a lot. I have a lot of books in the library, and, and there's some good ones. But, but if none of those books existed, the Scriptures already tell us what to do. Isn't that great to know? If, if Lifeway is gone tomorrow, you'll be okay if you have a Bible. Huh, what am I doing without a new bestseller? You know, you'll be okay. And there's some good stuff. Again, I'm not, I'm not putting that stuff down. I'm simply saying the Bible is our guide. But I knew from the foundation of the apostles and Paul's pastoral letters that we'd have a weak foundation if we didn't get elders in place. Uh, it was just, that's what the scriptures tell us. Now, you had to have people that were elder qualified, and uh, so Randy was elder number one, and more than qualified. Not too much later, Randy and I together, we prayed, and the Lord put Russ and Scott in our hearts. And again, I, I could have made that call, but the Lord, it was a, it was a collaborative prayer of, Lord, what it, how we move forward here. And so we put them both, you know, we had the same guys, and we saw a calling, at least for elder. I didn't, I, don't, I didn't, uh, to, to this day, I haven't asked Russ to give up the, the doctor business and be a full-time pastor or anything like that, but I see the, the calling of shepherding in other ways, able to teach in those, in those capacities. Um, now, 
Pastors used to have, by the way, uh, um, you ever watch old Disney movies? They put pastors in really good light. I love them. I, every time I watch them, I'm telling my girl, see, I told you we're important. Look, look at that right there. You know, Parson so-and-so. You know, they, everyone's at the house. That, today in America, uh, they're either celebrities or they're thought of as nothing. And I'm kind of okay with it because it doesn't matter. When I get to heaven, I'll answer the Lord. I don't really care that much what, what people think one way or the other. But um, pastors and elders, they can, people can ask the question, could they use the role and their authority for corruption. Of course. Of course they could use it for corruption. What do you think Paul's about to write about in verses 6 through 9? But of course they could use it for corruption. That's why you want and need godly pastors and elders. If they're godly, they won't do it with corruption. You see, godly men who are walking in harmony and obedience to the Holy Spirit, you will not see them misusing their roles. You will not see them turning the reins over to ungodly men or misleading people, right? You will not see a good parent say, I'd like my daughter to marry the most wild, satanic person on earth, right? That seems completely incongruent, right? Doesn't make any sense. And so, again, these things would be evident. Of course someone could use the title and the authority wrong. But I would say, if you look at um, the apostles, I think you'd agree with me, they had a great track record of selecting other godly men. You don't see a bunch of failure with their, do you? Titus, Timothy, those are the guys, you know, you can go on and on down. Uh, the only one that appears to be a mishit was Demas, and Paul never really kind of, Paul had questions about him all along. Never once put him in an affirming statement. He's like, he kept away from putting Demas in certain, but everyone else, their hit rate was like on the money. Why? Because they were walking in the Spirit. And when they're walking in the Spirit, godly men beget other godly men. They had a great track record of selecting and raising godly men that love the Lord and that love people. Anywhere in Scripture, anywhere in Scripture, if you, uh, if you see a godly man that went off the rails, and it does happen a few times in Scripture, right? There's a couple times where godly men started off godly and got off the rails. But every single time you see that, and there's not a lot. Numerically, it's not like a ton of, the, the failure rate's rather small comparison to men that stayed the course. But on a few, there's a few occasions where there was godly men that got off the rails, the evidence of their fall was evident well before the fall. Amen? Samson. You didn't have to, like, wait until that things went completely south to say, he's got a woman problem, right? Now, Samson wasn't a pastor anyway. He was a prophet. David, when he did go off the rails, it was for a short period of time relative to his lifespan, and it was laziness for a short period of time that cost him royally, Right? So you could have seen, hey, David, you know, you were always out with the men. All of a sudden, it's, it's a good, you know, admonishment, all of us, to stay in fellowship, stay with the body of Christ. There's safety in the herd, if you, if, and even for leaders. So it can happen. You know, we saw Eli, he wasn't being the godly father he was supposed to be, so his sons were way out of bounds, right? So Samuel ends up taking his place. Is it possible to fool people? Well, yes, Judas is exhibit A, right? 
and he served under Jesus. So that, I mean, if you, were, if you didn't really respect or understand the scriptures, you could even make some really bad assumptions about Jesus on this. But Jesus said he was a devil from the beginning. Jesus was never fooled. What I wanted, one of the reasons I think Jesus chose Judas, in addition to that he had to fulfill prophecy, we're coming to the end here, but I just want to finish this out so you understand. One of the reasons why I think Jesus chose Judas is that people would understand that God, just like the Garden of Eden, God always does things perfect, but people will always muddy the waters. Always. The garden was perfect. Nothing could go wrong. We still don't want God, right? Judas, under the ministry of Jesus, he still says, secretly, I'm going to be false. I'm going to be something different. So you could have someone that looks really holy and really is a fraud that wouldn't be exposed until the judgment seat. Well, not judgment Christ. That would be the great white throne if they really were false. But um, it is possible, and Judas uh, is that example. Now, one red flag I would mention here. Pastors that go way too long without having elders, to me, is a red flag. They go long. You know, I don't really need any leadership. I, I got all this under control. They may, but it, it, uh, that doesn't mean that that's a wise thing. Uh, or ones that have elders, but they never consult or pray with them. Those are red flags to me. You know, I see someone that, like, why, why would you even have them? You should be, uh, they should be involved in your life and, and vice versa. Now, Satan is very crafty. Have you ever had a person say to you, I, believe, I would believe in the Bible, except there's too many hypocrites in the church. I would gladly believe your Bible, except there's too many hypocrites in the church. I think that some people are programmed now to say this after all these years. Of course, you've heard it. Well, he uses the same bogus reasoning to cast out on biblical leadership, to use the same bogus leadership, I mean, the same bogus kind of, uh, you know, uh, bait and switch in people's minds on biblical leadership. Um, because people will think, well, well, I've seen certain pastors fall or they've been corrupt. So we're going to use committees of non-pastoral people to pick pastors. It's not scriptural. I mean, you can do it, and it's been done well. Don't get me wrong here. It's been done well. That doesn't mean that it's the right design. Just because it's done well. Lots of things have been done well. It's just by God's grace. So again, there's, there's committees that have a bunch of really spiritual people and they really mean well. But again, that's not, that's not what we see in Scripture. We see uh, pastoral begetting pastoral. Elders begetting elders. Levites begetting Levites. That's, uh, that's what's in the Scripture. But again, you can do other things and, and many times they'll work. You know? But doesn't mean... Uh, that that's the best way to go. Now, Satan, again, can use that uh, really bad, or it can, again, it can go well. Uh, but to say that, um, hey, we're just going to use a bunch of, because all these guys have, I can, this example, this example, this person's fallen, so we'll, uh, we'll just use non-elders and non-pastors to pick the elders and pastors. Uh, that's kind of like saying that because some doctors have had malpractice, and some engineers have had some missteps that we should let non-doctors and non-engineers pick who's going to build Boeing planes and uh, who's going to do surgeries. And they might get a bunch of them right, but guess what? They're going to get a lot of them wrong. 
So it doesn't make any more sense, that kind of logic, when I hear people say, let's think this through. This is what God says to do. It didn't fail for the first 100 years of the church, but now we need to change it. The first 100 years was some of the most fruitful of all time, and this is what we see. So many, many churches today, I don't know if you know, but a lot of churches today are foregoing elders altogether. A lot of the new modern hip churches, they don't even have elders. No need for it. They give them titles that are business titles, literally. A lot of them have C titles. They don't use words elders. They don't use word pastor. They have the same nomenclature as you find uh, at um, the leadership of Starbucks. I think there's a problem here, right? Why would we mirror the world? No, never would God say, you know what I'm going to design? I'm going to design the church look just like Babylon did it. No. The problem with that. And so Paul's saying to Titus, you've been anointed. You're a godly man. I'm sending you. I want you to go and find men that are like me, that are like Peter, that are like Barnabas, right? That are like James. Many churches think that uh, these kind of titles are irrelevant. Matter of fact, many churches today don't even like the word elder because it doesn't sound relevant in today's times, even though the word elder means of age, mature. But they don't want maturity. They want immaturity a lot of times. So, uh, and by the way, groups and committees and leadership teams, um, churches without pastors, all of these are becoming very normative things. I mean, you, you name it. There is a flavor out there, but uh, any form of leadership. Now, even if you have all these other ones, they say, well, we do this so we avoid some future Jim Jones kind of guy, right? You'll, they'll take the hyper extreme, like something like that. If you say that, say, you, you know, that's a great idea and all, but do you realize that every other form of leadership has gone corrupt too? You ever heard of the Nazis? They were a whole group of people. A whole party, right? Communist party. Small groups, large groups, big groups, in-between groups. Anyone, any type of leadership style has been corrupted. Can you think of a type of leadership anywhere in the world that hasn't been corrupted? So since they can all be corrupted, why don't we stick with God's plan after all? Amen? That's what God is saying. God said, look, you can come up with all that stuff you want, but this is the plan I laid out, so just follow it and trust God with the results. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. Uh, for the straightforwardness of your word and the surety of it. Lord, we, we believe that what you established 2,000 years ago is just as powerful and just as uh, practical and just as protective today uh, as it was then. And so we thank you for this time tonight. We pray that uh, you would uh, continue to teach us, instruct us. Uh, Lord, each and every one of us would be uh, your priest uh, in the work of God. But Lord, we will also... Uh, understand and appreciate uh, your order and your structure for the work of the gospel, that we would be a light in a dark world. And we just uh, pray your blessing on each person as we leave here tonight. Use us the rest of this week, uh, Lord, just to be a witness for you wherever we're at. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.